You are listening to the Homeland Heroes Salute, sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. No views expressed in this podcast represent any of the uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute. My name is Alyssa, and joining me today is Gary Dupree. Um, to hear the first and second part of Gary's story, go back and listen now to our previous episodes. Welcome back, Gary, for your third part of your interview. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we talked about what brought you to the military and what you did during the military. Can you just remind the audience about the branch you served in and when you served? Well, I joined the Army and I served in the infantry and I served for about 11 years from 99 to 2010. So you've been out. It's it's November of 2020. We're always recording ahead of time, especially given uh, the COVID restrictions that we have today. So you've been out for about 10 years now. How how has life been since you you got out? Tell us a little bit about your challenges coming home. So um, we were talking about this before we dove into the interview today, but you did two deployments in Iraq, correct? Correct. And then your last one was in 2010, 2011 or 20, 2009? Nine, nine to 10, yeah. What was your biggest challenges coming home the first time around? Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's really surreal to go from combat where it's, you know, you, you leave Iraq, which where especially my first tour, it's, uh, you know, and at any second during the day, your life could end. It's, 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 you know, it's that dangerous and, you know, your life is lost in an instant, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, small arms fire, mortars, rockets, you know, uh, you know, a mission that you might've been on, you know, it's, it, you're just constantly so uh, hyper vigilant to the extreme all the time. You know, you have, you know, you have all of these things you're responsible for, whether it's your equipment, your rifle, your sidearm, your, you know, if you're in charge of people, your men, you know, your personnel, vehicles, all of these things. And life is completely different in every way, you know, uh, and you go from that, getting on an airplane, flying back home landing on U.S. soil in which nobody's trying to hurt you, mm-hmm. right? And you, all those responsibilities are all of a sudden gone, right? You get off the airplane, somebody takes your rifle from you that has been glued to your body for, you know, 18 months. Yeah. So takes it from you and then you, you walk into this airport and all of a sudden there's just a crowd of people and they all are like cheering for you and they're trying to give you like cell phones to call for a ride if you need one you know they're giving you like bags with like soap and like toothbrushes and oh wow i remember i remember being one of the most uncomfortable feelings i'd ever had in my life like yeah i was was gonna ask it was the first time that i like really felt anxiety and it was it was really i felt like i was like out of my body watching myself I was like sweating and like panic and all I wanted to do was get through the crowd and onto this bus and get out of there it yeah. was and it was I, something I didn't expect and and I it was um I'll never forget it yeah that's until you said that I never I never really thought about the perspective of a soldier coming home like you see all these people and it, you know, and you see the YouTube videos all the time and they circulate on Facebook and, um, they come home to these giant crowds. Yeah. And it looks like this fantastic homecoming and it's this big party and you finally get to see people you love. Um, you know, if they're there to greet you, they're there. Um, but it's, I, I can understand how that giant crowd and make you feel so uneasy after spending time really not trusting big crowds. 
I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but you know, a lot of the guys that I served with the, you know, kind of felt the same way. And it's that, um, you know, people, we don't feel like heroes when we get home. That's not what we feel like. We feel like we, you know, we just got done, um, you know, a large scale mission, like doing a job. And when people are telling you that and calling you that, it just feels so awkward and weird and, uh, you know, uncomfortable. And uh, I mean, you, and you realize that that's not the way that you should receive it. And, you know, you try not to like show that that's how it's making you feel, but that's, that's exactly because you're like, I don't feel like a a hero or I don't feel like I should be like having these people lose their minds over, you know, me coming home or, or anything like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I can definitely understand. And I think that's something that a lot of people can kind of cannot kind of understand. I mean, you've been conditioned to kind of think a certain way and feel a certain way about one big crowds or about people. You haven't had really intimacy with anyone. So if people come up to you and hug you or want to shake your hand, like I'm sure that's weird as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it really is. You know, uh, we used to have um, this woman and uh, I did all my uh, tours out of Fort Hood <coughs> It was, uh, we'd fly in and out of the Fort Hood airport and, uh, which is right there on base. And, uh, every time you go in or in and out, whether we came home on leave, uh, you know, there was always this woman and she was, uh, she was, uh, we named her the Fort Hood hug lady. <laughs> and she since passed away. She passed mm-hmm. away. Uh, it's gotta be like five years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, she was this older woman. And, uh, she is far she was either a religious person, like, um, like a nun or just very religious, uh, you know, and her beliefs, but she never let a soldier from the beginning of the war. And until the end of it, never let a soldier go through that airport without being hugged. Wow. They, they estimate she hugged. I forget what the numbers were. There was insane. Wow, that's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And I I remember I personally hugged that woman probably six or seven times. She was always there when we when we came, came, when we left or came home. It was it was was something else. It was incredible. Yeah, to share that, that's that's something that you probably don't share with a lot of people in regards to like that that moment. Yeah, it's 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 a tight knit group of guys that uh, you know, uh, yeah. just only the guys in the first cab division, or uh, you know, fourth uh, ID that would have went out of that airport, and mm-hmm. you know, and so we remember when when she got sick and she passed away, a lot of people were went to her funeral and oh you know, really celebrated her life, and just remember she was like just you know one of those like living angels, you know. Yeah, it's it just goes to show you that the smallest act of kindness kindness sometimes means most. Yeah. So you, what year was that, that you um, did your first appointment or what years? Uh, so that was uh, six, seven, and eight. Uh, it was a span across those three years. Okay. And then you went back in 2009? Yeah. What led up to um, your decision to go that last time? Uh, well, they gave me the option, uh, to either get out of this army because my enlistment was up. So I, I was at 10 years. I had did a six year enlistment and then a four year enlistment. So I could have, I, I could have gotten out, but, uh, you know, I was a non-commissioned officer and I was in charge of, you know, a group of men. And, and I knew that if, uh, they had, you know, if I was to get out, then they'd be assigned before they left to, uh, you know, a new new leadership, and uh, that leadership would be responsible for them when they when they deployed. And uh, I just felt obligated to um, be the one to take them there. And as you know, as a leader in the service, you you want to bring all your men there, and you want to bring them all home. That's your that's your goal. You know, you want to get home safe to your family and you want to bring everybody else home. So I felt, you know, an obligation. And I knew if that something had happened to them, then that's just something that I couldn't live with. You know, I I don't know if I would have been able to get over that, you know, making that decision. And, you know, so 
I did. I went and uh, yeah, I, I definitely took everybody home. So. <laughs> wow. That's, that's incredible. That's awesome. So I just um, Googled it. Um, the Fort Hood hug lady. <laughs> and so the last name Bard or something, right? L-A-I-R-D. So I'm not Lard, sure. Yeah. yeah. Laird. So she, her name was um, Elizabeth Lard. And she, uh, she's going to, I guess um, this is back in 2016, it looks like, but yeah. the article that I'm reading, but she'll be, she's going to be honored or it has been honored inside the air terminal at Fort Hood, the U.S. Army Post in Central Texas, which is one of the largest military bases in the world. Um, she passed away, I think, in looks like in 2016 at 83 years old. So mm-hmm. that's that's a really incredible story. And I'd love to learn her backstory, too, because I'm sure there's something interesting there. <laughs> uh, she was just a pure hearted individual. I was. I definitely, uh, I definitely had some tears when she, when she passed away, that was, uh, that was something else because yeah. you know, she got sick and she was in the hospital mm-hmm. and so a lot of people were pulling for her. Yeah. But, you know. Very beautiful person, it sounds like. Yeah, really. So when you came home um, the second time around, walk us through that experience because at, at that point, did you know that you were not going to be reenlisting? Yeah, I did. Uh, so I knew that uh, uh, when I when I got back the second time, it was it was, a, it was a little bit different. I knew what I knew what to expect, and um, I knew that once I got back, I was going to start to clear right away. So clearing is uh, you're going to start. To, you're going to get you know all your paperwork to leave the military, and uh, you're going to go around to each section, and you know you have to take a bunch of classes. You know they put you through. Um, classes on how to write resumes and how to find jobs and, and things like that, which you know, wow. sounds great, but really I, I didn't really get a whole lot of use out of it. Okay. Um, you know, they bring in speakers of companies and, you know, uh, it, it ended up being about a, uh, like a two month process and you had to go around to every single entity in the army and, and have them s- sign your paperwork and you had to get so many signatures in a, s- a certain amount of time. And then once you did, you get your final stamp you know, and they send you into um, the big building where they, they process you and you get what's called a DD-214 at the end of it. And they look at all of your awards and medals and ribbons and uh, all your, you know, all your time. And they compile everything and they put it on one piece of paper. And they give you that, you get to give you that piece of paper and, and that's what you take with you. And once you get that, you're officially out of the service. How did that feel getting that piece of paper? Uh, you know, the process to get out of the service was insane. You know, it was just so much work and it, and it was, you know, it, 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 it's, it was so much aggravation. It cost me so much money to get out. Like every time the army wanted money for something that they said that, you know, over the, uh, over the 10 year enlistment that I had, you know, the army has issued me hundreds of things. And, you know, for example, going to turn in equipment, they're like, uh, says here, you were issued two sleeping bags. I'm going, why would I need two sleeping bags? And they're I don't know. Well, they issued two sleeping bags and these sleeping bags are $1,100 a piece. And you're only turning in one sleeping bag. We need you to turn in two sleeping bags. And I'm thinking, well, do you think maybe when the guy was, you know, hitting it with the, uh, you know, the reader, they scan him in. I said, you think maybe he just did it twice by accident? Wow. doesn't matter. You know, you can turn around and I had to go buy, I had to go buy a um, brand new sleeping bag and turn that in, you know, $1,100 for that. And then the list just goes on every, it's like every other day, there was something new that I had to, you know, so it was really a lot of aggravation, a lot of footwork, a lot of making appointments and canceling appointments, you know, a lot of deadlines to meet. So it was pretty stressful. So once you, once we finally get there, you know, it feels it feels really good, and I remember getting that piece of paper and and putting that Fort Hood in my rearview mirror in my truck. Mm-hmm. That was it. I never went back. Yeah, 
the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Was there anything that you did get to keep? I didn't realize that everything that the military issues you or a majority, I guess. It's not everything. And it's really weird. To me, it seems seems completely random. You know, they'll let you keep, they let you keep a a lot of random stuff and a lot of random stuff they want back. Mm-hmm. You know, when I joined and, you know, when I went to Korea, they issued me a whole lot of uh, cold weather gear <laughs> and I got like balaclavas and gloves and stuff that was, looks like it was from Vietnam that I got when I was in Korea that I never even used. And when I was getting out of the service, they were asking for that stuff back. And I'm like, Jesus, I don't even know where half the shit is. Um. And so, but they let me keep like, you know, you got all your uniforms that you wore every day you can keep. And, you know, a couple of the cool, like combat, like uh, assault packs, you know, and and bags and, you know, flashlights and stuff like that, that you got, you know, some things, some things that they kept. And, you know, I guess it just depends on their record keeping, I guess. And it would seem pretty random, but some they asked for some really stupid stuff back and then some stuff I couldn't believe they didn't want back. So, yeah. Um, what about like I actually have like this is just something I'm curious about now, but um, I have an it's a vent or vintage or antique, whatever you want to call it, maybe from like the 70s. Oh my, I don't think it's that old, maybe the 80s. It's um, but I have an old army jacket that someone upcycled at like you know, any um girly jewelry store kind of store. And, um, in some of the jackets that they sell have like names on them. So I think, um, my, my jacket doesn't have a name on it and all the patches have been removed, but so they must, you know, collect it. And then at the end, when that, that uniform is not used anymore, send it somewhere. Did you uh, keep any? What happens with those uniforms? They ended up uh, like uh, a lot of guys give those to secondhand shops or like Army Navy stores, and uh, that's probably what ended up happening with that. They, and for the most part, I I don't think that they um they ever take uniforms back, mm-hmm. but uh, sometimes they do. They call it DXing your uniform. So sometimes you can turn in uniforms and get new uniforms. Oh, okay. Depending. Uh, I, I don't remember what the stipulations were. Usually you have to pay for your uniforms and they usually give you a clothing allowance, you know, annually. And, and you end up buying new uniforms with that. But every now and then, like, I guess if you, you know, if they send you on a mission or they, you do some training and you end up, you know, destroying all your uniforms, you can end up, you can have them pay for your uniforms for you if you do something, you know, special. Wow. That's the only yeah, time more, to back. The more you know. <laughs> uh, something again, something I, I wouldn't think of in regards to the military. Yeah. I know my my great great grandfather served in like something ridiculous, like every branch of the military. He lied about his age to get into World War II or yeah. to get into the military. And then he was in the Air Force. He was a Marine at one point, I think. Um, did a whole bunch of stuff. And, and my grandmother has a lot of, um, his old stuff, like his, he has a sword, I think from one of his uniforms, you know, we got a picture of him, um, in like the, the old school pilot gear, um, did a lot of really cool stuff, but that's a piece of history. Imagine that. Imagine what, a 17 year old kid lying to get in. To I think the- he was like 14. He was younger than that. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of guys did that. Oh, yeah. A lot of guys, you know, to escape what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's in, you know, there's no internet to check. <laughs> you can't check Facebook back then. <laughs> so what were um, some of the challenges that you faced when, when you, you know, you have the paper in hand, you're done Fort Hood's in, in the rear view mirror Maybe you're at a bar drinking a few drinks after that. <laughs> what well, you, you get out on, you get out on terminal leave. And so usually when you get out, you have enough, you have a bunch of leave saved up, you know, a couple of months. So, you, you know, say you have three months of leave saved up when you get out of your planet, right? That's what you usually end up having. And uh, so you're still going to get paid for three months. Okay. Uh, so you, you're going to, you need to find a job and usually you get a, you know, you cash in 
you know, cash and some leave and things like that. So you're going to get like, a, you know, you're going to get a chunk of change in a, in a couple of months. They pay for uh, pay for your travel and your move. And a lot of people capitalize on that, you know, and they, you know, the, they estimate how much it's going to, how much they, it's going to cost to move. And then they tell them and that the, the military cuts you a check and then you try to do it for less than that, you know, so mm-hmm. you get a little bit of money. And so you kind of bank in, you know, if you don't have a, if you don't really have a nest egg, which a lot of guys don't, when they get out of the service, you just don't make enough money, you know, to, to not really live paycheck to paycheck. I'd say the majority of the enlisted guys live paycheck to paycheck. It's, you know, they're making anywhere from, you know, you know, uh, low twenty thousand dollars to you know to maybe fifty thousand dollars when you know as a non-commissioned officer when you get out. So you know, these guys don't have a lot of money, but you know they you're you're basically going to get out and either try to get a job or try to go to school. And um, I was dead set on going to school. I did dropped out of high school and. Uh, and it was in my mind since I since I had accomplished it, I felt very accomplished when I was getting out of the service. I felt like I had done a lot of things. I had seen a lot of things. Yeah. And uh, I pretty much um, I pretty much uh, accomplished everything that I set out to do to date at that point. But I didn't have a high school diploma. I had a GED at the time and, and uh, college was you know, the, the next thing on my list. So I had to prove to myself that that was something that I could do. So I packed up you know, my truck and, and I came back, moved out to New England and I um, went and, and I just walked into, you know, the university of New Haven in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I had to just try and I ended up actually it was good timing. It was in April. So I, <laughs> I showed up and I was like, you know, Hey, I'm a veteran and I, I'm, I want to learn about, you know, getting into the school. And they're like, well, you got to go to admissions. I'm like, okay. So I went there and I, I ended up, you know, sitting down with this woman who deals with veterans and, uh, and uh, she talked to me and we got like a whole game plan going. And I was basically, and she basically said to me, like, since you're a veteran, you're like, the ultimate minority, they, they need to, they need veterans to go to school there. And I was like, oh, they said the university of New Haven's not that easy to get into, you know, mm-hmm. well, that's good. You know, it's a decent school. I thought it was a great school. And, um, I basically walked on. I didn't have to take any type of, um, SATs. I didn't have to write any essays. I didn't have to do anything. I just started wow. signing up for classes and, uh, and that's, I, that's how you got to do it. It was, you know, I remember being super intimidated by it, like just yeah. not knowing the process and, you know, uh, didn't know what class to take. I had no idea about, you know, what I should be starting with. And it was good to go in there and just start asking questions and having somebody, you know, just, you know, spoon feed it to you. And, and help you through it and say, these are the classes you need to take. You're going to take a couple of these tests to find out how remedial you are. And I'm like, yeah, remedial <laughs> English and remedial math. And, you know, and they set you up and, and I went to school for, you know, my, my undergrad, I went to school straight through. I went to winter classes and summer classes and I got my bachelor's in, in three years. Wow. That's, that's incredible. It, oh, it's, with the with the with the GI Bill, you know, they give you a stipend to live. So I didn't really need a job, and you know, I had a part time job to kind of keep my sanity. Yeah, it, it was very difficult just to start going to school, and your only job was to go to a couple classes, you know, a week, and you know, homework and things like that. So I was going crazy not having a job. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I. It, I got a part-time job and you know, have to, you know, just keep going to school. And at, after three years, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I minored in psychology because uh, that was something I really needed to start understanding, like what I was going through uh, as far as like the PTSD and, 
you know, uh, the anxiety has like severe anxiety all the time. And so I, I, I said, you know, minoring in psychology would be a good idea for me. <laughs> Were you able to, and I know they always say, you know, ne- never take a psych class and try to psychoanalyze yourself, but, but did it help you? It really did. Actually, my uh, my psych teacher actually got me hooked up with a bunch of folks at Yale Medical. Oh, wow. And, uh, she worked there specifically with uh, with uh, combat veterans. Okay. And uh, she approached me and and she because she learned a little bit about me through class, just through discussion. And uh, she said she asked me if I would be interested. And so I was. And at that point in time, Yale was running these full scale like programs and um, testing. This was right around the time, too, that like, I mean, we I, I feel like with PTSD, when when everyone was first going over to Iraq and Afghanistan in the early 2000s and mid 2000s, there wasn't as much resources for when um, yeah. people came back. Well, you know, we watched it. We we watched these guys come back and 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 completely fail. Where you know, from the first wave of you know in two thousand three, these guys were coming back and they would hang around the base and they would essentially just die off. They were they're becoming homeless. They would disappear. They were getting hooked on. They were getting hooked on drugs at like such an alarming rate. I was watching these friends of mine just you know, go to the VA and they get, you know, Percocets and, you know, Oxycontin and all that. And they would just get hooked and they'd be on heroin and then you'd never see them again. Wow. It was happening. And I was knowing of guys that this was happening to. And so I was just super aware of that. And I, I, I got my rating when I got, when I was getting out of the service, you know, I got my disability rating after I went through all my medical records. I got that pretty quick, but I went to the VA and uh, the VA sat me down and they're like, all right, we got to get you, um, we got to get you on some type of program, you know, to help you with the pain. And I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, they were going to send you to pain management. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and so they send me over this pain management. And this is like a couple of, you know, a bunch of appointments I was going to and they were and this is, checking me out. And this, this is physical pain, right? Say again. Is this, this is physical pain? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. This is all the physical stuff, the joints and the, mm-hmm. you know, the backs blown out and the headaches and everything else. Sure. And, uh, they, I went to pain management and they're like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to prescribe you these opiates basically. <laughs> and I says, no, that's not happening. And they were just so taken back by that. And he was just like insulted that I told him that I wouldn't do it. And he was, he was really pushing, pushing me to take these pills. And I says, we're going to have to figure something else out because I'm not taking these drugs for the rest of my life. And and they didn't really have much of an answer for me then. I thought it was incredible. It just was something that I was so afraid of. And I, been watching for years then that these doctors were just doing that. And when I was, when I was getting out, I, you know, I had really close friends that, uh, you know, they're still, they're still hooked on them. Those drugs That's 10 crazy. years later, five yeah. years later, they were just trying to kick it, you know, lost everything, lost their wives, lost custody of their kids, jobs. You know, I had guys that were firefighters that got fired because they were just hooked on hardcore drugs. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a huge deal because there's nothing else that there's nothing else that these guys at such a young age, what they're doing to their bodies. And then they get out and, and they, they just have to live with that pain and they just don't, they just don't know how to deal with it. You know, I went the route of like acupuncture and, uh, you know, massage therapy and, you know, I just take a regiment of a leave every day. You know, and I, and I live with, I live with quite a bit of pain every day and, you know, I I get cortisone shots when it gets really bad and things like that. But one thing I stayed away from is any type of narcotic. That's just important. Yeah. And it's, you have, you know, you have the added effect of 
the mental health aspect that's involved too, where I think a lot of the country, you know, we have a lot of opioid and um, heroin and meth and all these really hard drugs that are really bad. And it's, it tends to target, I think, you know, this is my opinion. And and from what I've seen personally, because I've had, unfortunately, I've had family members affected by drugs and, you know, pass away at, you know, my age. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm just late twenties. And and the the fact that certain people in my life aren't going to turn 30 years old is mind boggling um, because of a path they chose. And, And a lot of this, I think, comes from, not dealing with mental health. Um, and that's something I think we've, I think the, the public has seen with, um, with, with these men and women that are coming back from serving overseas is how can we help them in a way that doesn't make zombies out of them? Um, and we have to look at these, these other ways, um, more holistic ways, I think of, of dealing with, with pain and dealing with, the mental health side, because the mental health side really, especially if you, if you have, if anyone who has addiction in their, in their family line, um, genetics all, also plays a part in it. It's a, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's really tough to reverse what the, what the, the military, not to mention what it, the combat arms military does to its service members mentally, mm-hmm. they mentally, uh, you know, they really they really instill in you to tough it out and, and handle it yourself. You know, you are just taught that, you know, pain is temporary. And, you know, if you can keep moving, just move, you know, and, you know, just keep going. And you, you're taught that if you, if you ask for help at any time, you're, you're just weak, you know, that you shouldn't ask for help. You should just continue to help should be the absolute last thing you ask for. And these guys get out and they have this mentality that, you know, they, they, they're, it's, it's pride. It's part of who you are. It's your, you know, you're, you're just physically, mentally tough. You've been through, you know, some of the worst shit that this, the world has to offer, you know, you, you surely can handle being a civilian and dealing with this, this stuff, dealing with these like night tremors and, and nightmares and these memories and these thoughts, you can, you know, you can work through it. And they, these guys, and they can't, and, you know, they, they can't work through the, you know, the, the depression and, you know, yeah. That creature that just gets on you. Yeah. 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 And it's it's something we discuss a lot on this podcast, the the mental health aspect. And in I just want to say for anyone listening that is struggling with mental health, um, thoughts of suicide, drug addiction, anything. Um, if you don't feel like you're worth it, you are. You matter to someone, you matter to us. Um, and if you need help there are resources there. It does not show you are weak. It shows that you are strong because you are battling something inside of you and you have a team around you that can help you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that, Gary. I know um, it's probably one of the toughest things that you can share. Uh, yeah, it is, you know, and it's, it's, it's still active in my life. You know, I, I still lose, uh, you know, many friends, you know, it's mm-hmm. sometimes it seems like it's, you know, you know, three at a time and, you know, and then it goes a couple of months without it. And then, you know, the, the guilt sets in, you know, you, yeah. somebody you haven't talked to in a while and you never, you know, you, you, you realize how, how incredible a bond you have with these people that you haven't spoken to and, you know, or, you know, just, you know, talk through a text every now and then, or, you know, comment on a Facebook post or something like that. You have these incredible bond and memories with these people and you don't realize how bad that they're suffering inside until, Mm -hmm. you know, they do something, you know, they take their own life. Yeah. And uh, you, you just, really you start going through what it is you could have done. And, you know, maybe it was, maybe it was something that, you know, they had said like you, and you didn't reply or something like that, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 
a lot of, you know, the, the worst thing, possible thing that you go through is, is the guilt, you know, the guilt, you feel really guilty about people that didn't make it people that, you know, the survivor's guilt. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the worst. It's the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it tears you up. Yeah, of course. Um, Back to college. So you went for three years. Three years. Um, What year did you graduate? Let's see. (laughs) I graduated in 2013. Okay. And uh, I started right away my my graduate degree at. uh, Oh, okay. So I moved uh, moved up to New Hampshire, and I started my graduate degree at um, Northeastern. Oh, great school. Which I was super excited about. And uh, Northeastern was great. The graduate the graduate program was really cool. And the material was cool. But there was such a giant school in the middle of the city. It was so hectic. And mm-hmm. It was kind of a number. And, you know, I ended up just kind of like just working my way through it. And and uh, and uh, I actually ended up getting, uh, getting two graduate degrees out of it. Why was that? I kept going to school until... <laughs> Until I uh, until I found a job, it <laughs> was what was happening. I started started looking for a job when I when I started my graduate program, and then you know going through resumes, and, and uh, you know I finally decided on a job and and stopped going to school after that. But I was like a professional student for six years. <laughs> <laughs> That's not too bad. Um, so then about 2016 is when you completed your master's. Yep. So during that time as well, back to the, to the mental health thing. So you were exploring that side and, and exploring that side of recovery, I suppose would be a good way of saying that. Were you, are were you still actively throughout these years and even today, um, working on your mental health? I was really, really did a lot of um, work on mental health when I was in my undergraduate. Um, and I was going to Yale a couple times a week, and uh, I was really, I, you know, I was working with some really, really good doctors that were, you know, helping me deal and cope with a lot of things. Uh, I, you know, I was able to take away, you know some perspective from these doctors that helped me get through a lot of stuff. And I, you know, I, I was going, I was going to the VA and seeing a psychologist in Boston, uh, while I was at Northeastern. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I, you know, I, I guess I kind of started to, to drift away from it a little bit. And, uh, I was seeing, I, I was still seeing this year, um, I'm I'm a therapist Mm -hmm. and with the whole thing with COVID, it kind of got all kind of screwed up, but COVID kind of put a stop to, Mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, I just believe that you can't, you, you, you can't be the one to say that you're okay, especially after like the, you know, that type of lifestyle and those type of that, you know, those experiences and things like that, it's best to have somebody talk to you and and get yourself evaluated. Because if you're going to be the one to like self-identify whether or not you have a problem, it's probably the wrong answer. (laughs) You want to go talk to somebody who, who's, you know, gets paid the big bucks to talk to you and decide whether or not, you know, gets to psychoanalyze you. Someone else needs to psychoanalyze you. I mean, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that that definitely, you know, are all all against therapy, but mm-hmm. not me. That's that's great to hear, and I, I definitely can. I I know several people who believe the stigma and continue to keep up with that stigma, who could really benefit from from therapy, which is unfortunate because I think I I really believe that everyone deserves to be come their best selves. And if you need to talk to someone in order to become your best self, therapy is something I personally do. And I've, you know, come leaps and bounds. And a lot of the therapy for me has been, I talk to someone and they show um, a different way of thinking. Why are you worrying about this? 
when it's really, you know, this big or a lot of these epiphanies that I have are because I'm saying something and then I go, wait a second. I just thought, I know why I'm thinking this way or something like that. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm able to be a better person and that allows me to be a better person to the people I care about and to the world. Yeah. <clears throat> people, you know, they, uh, the media or the TV and, you know, the st- sets this like this visual oh, of what it's yeah. like to go to a shrink or something, you know, or maybe you have tried going to therapy and you get this doctor that it was just terrible, you know, mm-hmm. didn't understand you. And, you know, you just, just had just no connection with, you know, it's, yeah. I, you know, it, you just got to put one foot in front of the other and, and you know, just uh, try another doctor, get to another, get to a doctor, you know, or a psychologist or a therapist, you know, uh, get to one that you really connect with and, you know, and, you know, you have a good conversation. Yeah. The, the relationship that you have with a therapist, counselor, or even a psycho, um, a psychiatrist is really important. And you have to sometimes search for that because, you know, if, if you have dark humor, like some of us do, I do. Um, so I laugh at some of the traumas that I've had in my life. Um, and, and my, my therapist actually, my, he, he's considered a counselor, I guess. I don't know if there's a big difference, but he, he laughs right alongside me. And and I appreciate that because he understands, he he understands where I'm coming from. and, And that's, that's really important to have that relationship yeah um, find that relationship it's you know it's it's one of the more important ones if that my, you my last therapist was a combat vet oh wow definitely had the gallows humor on the outside <laughs> and that really helps you know, if you can be yourself and not worry about yes. offending anybody yeah that's i think huge because you know we we all think things that we probably shouldn't or <laughs> whether good or bad sure. um and it's you know, that's, that's part of the human experience, I think is, you know, we're complex creatures and why are we complex? And that's what therapy helps us figure out. So, yeah. Um, hopefully you can get back into that soon. If, if you feel like you need it. Yeah, <laughs> Telehealth I, is great. <laughs> I think I'll always go, you know, yeah. Do you, any reason to stop going. So I know you're married. Do you ever do counseling with your wife or have you? Uh, we have. Yeah. Absolutely. That's another, I think, avenue that a lot of veterans might not want to do. They might not want to share certain things around their spouse. And I know talking with spouses, that's something where the spouse wants to, or I think just anyone in a relationship wants to help the person they love. And in couples therapy is something too that, you know, let's take away that stigma because that's just as important as, as a regular, your own, your individual therapy. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I know that the VA offers um, like specialized therapy for uh, couples that um, that are geared towards the veteran's spouse, you know, kind of geared towards helping them um, understand why their veteran is so crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, why they, you know, uh, learning how, you know, how to cope with uh, you know, it's a different type of relationship, I guess, you know? Yeah. Just learning how to communicate. They can go go by themselves to these, um, these, um, therapy sessions or they can go with, uh, the veterans. Oh, wow. That, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it, uh, I think it's really helpful. Um, Jess and I, we've just gone to, you know, regular therapy sessions together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some have been more useful than others. Of course. <laughs> and and I think something unique too is um, your wife, you met after you were out of the service. Yeah, I sure did. Yeah. So, so tell us that story, Gary. I already know it. I've heard it a couple of times now. <laughs> so uh, I met, I met Julie Weymouth uh, through, uh, my stepsister who used to work for Annie Custer. And Julie Weymouth is the, one of the co-founders of the Homeland Heroes Foundation, which helps produce this podcast. And she, 
my wife knows Julie from, stay with me here, her brother's <laughs> wife's mother is also a co-founder. Yes. Kim McMahon. So Jess was invited to this gala, which is, you know, to get fancy, nice, you know, dressed to the nines is a terrible event. You know, you can wear, be as dressed up as you want or just, you know, a button up shirt and a pair of slacks, you know. One of the biggest events of the year for the Homeland Heroes Foundation. We raise a lot of money and and have a lot of fun. So if, and if you're ever in the New England area, it usually happens around March. Sign up. But anyways, keep going. <laughs> Yeah, no, good plug. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it was wonderful. I, I, I was really touched when I seen, you know, how big it was, and you know, and how how much people wanted to give back during the event. And of course, there was music and dancing, and and uh, you know, you know beverages. Yeah, bar, <laughs> everything else. I was drinking, uh, was drinking martinis that night. Oh goodness! Um, so I, I went with. Uh, I, t- I told Julie I'd go, but she had to uh, let me and uh, my stepsister and her wife go. And uh, so she bought uh, she bought a ticket for myself and my stepsister, who is also a combat veteran. And uh, we bought the, the third ticket for her wife. And uh, we all showed up and we uh, sat at these big round tables and we didn't know anybody. And they were just assigned seats. And... Uh, I ended up sitting with another group of people and uh, that group of people was my now wife and her family and (laughs) her friend. And uh, so she was sitting across the table from me and uh, I eventually got up and enough uh, courage to ask her to dance. And we enough martinis, you mean? (laughs) I think I was in the line buying a martini when I asked her to dance. (laughs) She's, she said, yes, she played a little hard to get, but, uh, I got her and, uh, <laughs> probably pretty much been inseparable since. Yeah. So not only does the Homeland Heroes Foundation help veterans with resources and furniture and housing and all that great stuff, but we're also apparently matchmakers. The <laughs> <laughs> gal is a good, the gal is a good one too. Cause you know, she looked incredible. <laughs> yes people some people do dress to the nines on that night i look like crap but <laughs> <laughs> you weren't too bad yes i would look good enough <laughs> i mean she married you so you must have looked good enough i had to wear her down i think <laughs> there's always that side of it too i suppose yeah. and and what do you do for work now I work for the state department work at the National Passport Center and uh, in Portsmouth. That's so awesome. I do stuff with citizenship for the uh, government. Very cool. It's a nice gig. It's uh, yeah. very low key. And the one's uh, no danger, really secure <laughs> building, you know, and I get up and pour myself a cup of coffee is about the exercise I get during the day. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's... It's real cush. So I, I, I like I like what I do and uh, yeah, it's probably what I'm going to do for a while. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so a couple couple few more questions before we wrap it up. Sure. Um, what advice would you give to one, someone enlisting and two, someone coming home? Oh, boy. Someone enlisting. Uh, I guess uh, I, I guess if. When I went, when I, when I joined the service, I, I had no idea what I was getting into, but I, you know, uh, I, people were telling me, but I just couldn't hear them. Yeah. I, I would say just keep an open mind about what you're doing. And the, the military can take you into so many crazy directions. You have no idea where you're going to wake up and be, you know, the next day. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what you're going to be doing. It's, you know, it, it branches out so far, you know, you could be living in Korea, you know, uh, one week and then all of a sudden wake up in Hawaii, you know, for the next three years. That doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> <laughs> or Europe or, you know, stateside, you know, yeah. but the, you know, it, it, it's, you just got to keep an open mind. And if you see, you take it, it sees every opportunity that you can when you join the service. And uh, if you're going to be a lifer, that doesn't mean you, you know, 
don't go to college, definitely go to college and take advantage of the free schooling that that's offered while you're in the service. And if you decide to get out, just definitely have a plan, you know, have a plan to either get a really good job or, you know, get an education if you don't already have one. Sure. Yeah, I think that's great advice. What was the second question? Um, advice you would give to someone coming home from deployment or, or I guess even le- leaving the military. Uh, coming home and, and getting out of the service it, it is definitely the big thing is taking those steps to like, like what I had to do to go to school. I was really, really intimidated by the fact of walking into a university, which I had never really been, you know, in the admissions portion of a university, the only thing, maybe a, maybe college dorms drinking when I was a kid, but <laughs> I'd never been past that. So I, it was just taking, putting one foot in front of the other and just started asking questions and asking people, you know, where to go and what to do and, and taking those steps to get there and, and, and seeking out that help, you know, was a big step for me. I was, you know, super intimidated and I would just tell people, you know, take those steps to, you know, every day, try to ask questions and, you know, accomplish that, that goal that you have when you do get out, you know, learn how to learn how to write a resume and put resumes in, make sure you have a skill or you're going to, you know, learn a skill when you get out. It's really important. Absolutely. It's not going to be, it's not going to be, I know that the military is incredibly difficult and, and extremely structured. And you have this, this thought in your mind that if you were able to do that, if you were able to do all that you did in the service, when you get out, you know, being a civilian should just be a cakewalk. And it's, it's, it's not like that. It's completely different. It's a cakewalk in many, many ways, but there's so many different challenges that you end up dealing with because of the difference, you know, and, uh, it, you have to be aware of these things. Absolutely. What, if anything, do you wish civilians would understand about our military service members or our veterans? Oh my God. Do we have another couple hours? <laughs> um, I think uh, there, there's a stigma surrounding, you know, talking to veterans, you know, combat veterans about uh, talking about their service and it being like extremely difficult to talk about. And, and I have explained to people in the past that it's not necessarily that talking about things that happen to service is, is all that hard to talk about. You know, there are memories we definitely don't want to, you know, have a hard time, you know, going through, but for the most part, it's, it's hard to discuss things that happen in the service to people who really aren't well equipped to receive it. If you, if I, if you, if you tell someone a story and you don't really believe that they can comprehend what it was all about, it's really difficult to continue to talk to them about it and you don't want to be rude. it's it's a it's an it's an interesting feeling when you start talking to people who are who have no military affiliation and you tell them about something and then just kind of nod their head and go wow yeah that must have sucked <laughs> you just don't know like there's just no words for it. you're like yeah it definitely sucked you know <laughs> so the, I think that's what that's why a lot of guys shy away from, you know, getting into conversations and they don't really want to talk about things in the service because it becomes difficult to uh, discussing it with, you know, you know, your everyday person. Sure. Absolutely. How do you, and I know the answer to this one, how do you give back to your community? I guess it's time to make the announcement that Gary will be joining me as my veteran host for the Homeland Heroes Salute podcast. (laughs) It's going to be fun. I'm very excited to have you. I think, I think we get on really well, um, which is very important for hosts. Going to miss Art. Art was a great co-host. So was David. They were really fun to have on and um, now I'm really happy to add you to the Homeland Heroes Foundation team and the Homeland Heroes Salute. It's going to be a lot of fun, but tell me in a little bit about um, 
the importance of, of joining the Holman Harris Salute and being able to give back because of the Holman Harris Foundation? Well, it's, it's really important, you know, because a, a lot of the big fight is when you when you actually end up getting out of service. And I know that I felt obligated when I got out of the military to, you know, find something I could do to help, you know, and instead of just getting out and, you know, moving on with my life, I wanted to do something. I was, I was donating, you know, my time to the, to the VA and to um, Yale university, you know, I was doing studies and, and uh, helping them try to understand vets um, and what they're going through. I, I dedicated a lot of my time then and that I was, you know, happy to do that. And I felt like I was, you know, helping. And uh, it's really important because the, the more people that are aware and the more you spread awareness about uh, in what life is like and what these guys go through when they get back, uh, mm-hmm. the more we're going to be able to support them and get them the help that they need, you know, get the, the VA, the funding and the, you, make these programs bigger and, and more well-known so these people can take advantage of it. The number, the astronomical number of the veterans that commit suicide every day is, is incredible. And it's just, it's, it's insane. It can be avoided, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's that, uh, what they, they say, it's a, you know, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yes, it, it is. You know? And you don't end the pain, you just pass it on. I saw a really good quote the other day that really changed kind of my perspective a little bit. Um, And it was, you know, you're not change the the rhetoric around how you word things. And it's you're not suffering from depression. You're battling depression. Um, And I think that can really resonate with the veteran community is you're, you know, you're just battling this. And you have, like I said before, you have people surrounding you that love you, care about you. You have resources at your fingertips. Um, if you're in the New England area, contact the Holman Heroes Foundation um, on on Facebook. Um, you can go to HolmanHeroesFoundation.org. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. We are here to help you and help you get those resources. Um, that has been one of my favorite things about the Homeland Heroes Foundation is that we've created this community around the organization that helps and has these resources and can get you in touch with someone that can help you. Or um, if you called up the Homeland Heroes Foundation, you would probably, um, Julie Weymouth would probably answer, and she's going to hate me for saying this, but she is an incredible person that really has dedicated her life to helping these service members and anyone who calls, she will sit on the phone for hours (laughs) if she feels like that's what you need. And just talking to her, I know I've heard from other veterans, just talking to her has really helped them and very grateful for, for what she and the organization and what the foundation has um, does for veterans day to day. And the resources are there. The help is there. All you have to do is make that phone call or reach out your hand. Trust in it. Trust that yeah. it's going to help. Trust that, you know, it, it is depression is such a struggle and it can be a long battle. And you just have to trust that these, the programs and the help and the people that care are going to be there to help you get through it. Yep. And, and you just can't give up. Yeah, absolutely. Never don't don't give up and reach out. I think that's that's very powerful and and hopefully people do reach out and hopefully somewhere this podcast um can really impact someone's life and I really that's that's my biggest goal is I if if I can impact a few lives this podcast will have met all of its goals. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Um, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I think this one's going to be longer than part one and part two combined for sure. Um, but a lot of really good 
um, impactful things that you've said today. And, and I'm really happy to have you on the team and um, get started to interview some other veterans. And we have non, we're going to be interviewing nonprofits that help with um, service members. We're going to be interviewing doctors, counselors, um, other veterans who have created nonprofits who have gone on to become counselors themselves to help other people. We have a lot of really exciting things coming up and I'm, I'm really excited to get your perspective, Gary, yeah, um, absolutely. on these things and see what kind of questions you have given your experience. So I'll, I'll both. I'm going to be a better interviewer than an interviewee. <laughs> no, you're not terrible at all. You're perfect. Um, <laughs> that sounded sarcastic. It's not how I meant it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> I'm perfect. <laughs> no, this is this has been really great. And I, um, it makes me very excited because I, I just listening to you today in our conversation today has um, I'm, I'm learning a lot about you. And I'm excited to learn more about you and, and um, hear you ask questions from the veteran perspective and from someone who is I know we're going to be talking with um, counselors and <clears throat> doctors that deal with PTSD. Um, so I know you've, you've struggled with that and it's going to be really interesting to hear your side and, and how, um, what they do on a daily basis and how they help has, has, and can impact even your life. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Well, um, I think that's a really good way to wrap up this episode. Thank you again for joining me. Um, and thank you to everyone out there for joining us for part three of Gary's story. This podcast is brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at DairyCam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.